Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. This afternoon, I'm very, very pleased to be able to speak uh, with Will Rudick and uh, Caroline Dama. And I'm very excited to be able to speak to both of you uh, because of uh, this unique thing that you are doing. Many people around the world are familiar with M-Pesa as, the, uh, as a currency that originated out of Kenya and, um, uh, and has been uh, promoted widely um, as an inclusive finance platform. But more than just that, um, is the whole idea of uh, sustainable development uh, and community um, creation um, and, and sustaining community at the local level. Uh, and what both of you have pioneered, well, pioneered in a way uh, or taken it to a very uh, developed extent uh, is the whole idea of um, community currency. Um, so I want us to have a conversation which is part educational and part um, issue-centric. Um, maybe uh, both Will and Caroline, we can start with uh, the organization that you lead, uh, Grassroots Economics, um, and um, the whole idea of uh, sustainable development um, and how you originated uh, this movement that you've created. We started uh, working on community currencies back, I mean, in Kenya in about 2010, and uh, the basic premise came from a long history of community currencies and study and which basically said that there is goods and services people can be trading. It's just that there's not enough medium of exchange to enable that to happen. And there's not enough price elasticity uh, to deal with uh, meeting supply and demand, right? That because prices tend to be fairly fixed, you end up with people just sitting around uh, waiting until they get an income but in the meantime, they could have been doing daycare and haircuts and uh, offerings for their church. And there's, there's so many goods and services people could potentially be doing um, that they just don't because there's this lack of money. And, and that's at the heart, in a way, of a lot of our thinking of uh, can the supply of a medium of exchange do more to support development than just airdropping them U.S. dollars or, or Kenyan shillings, as, as a lot of aid does. So we came in from sort of an aid perspective and we sort of mobilize uh, the, the community by providing a liquidity source. William said that, yes, we came from an aid point of view, but then we had to ask ourselves also fundamental questions. Like most of the time, aid is more a top-down approach. So it's uh, someone else deciding what is good for the community. And most of the time, that's not sustainable. Once you decide to go away when the funds have run out, mm -hmm. what happens to the community? Are you uh, maintaining them in sort of a loop whereby they are constantly looking outside? And can we look for programs that encourage them to look inside that are more bottom up rather than up down? He was uh, traveling around and he had heard about the ideas of community currencies. So the question was, how could we adapt it to the cultural and social context in Kenya? And what would that look like? And how would we be able to rally the communities? And how can we look at resources that are within the community? And so that's the whole idea of behind community currencies. It's about communities tapping into their own intrinsic value and showing them that they have a lot of capacity and essentially everything that they need is within the community and then to okay. rally them towards that. So let me, let me take a view of a layman. The whole idea of creating value from a closed community uh, that doesn't get created if you used uh, 
fiat currency or, or the um, the national currency, um, the the, the uh, currency in its original form. So community currency is a form of value capture. Would I be correct to say that? We are providing liquidity based on uh, a voucher or, or essentially a promissory note, a, a promise against future production, right? So a community is coming together. They're committing their future production into a voucher, right? So they're creating a voucher, like a, a credit, and there's a social process on, on that right now. It's not, uh, that's not on chain, but there's a, there's a piece of paper, it gets signed by them and the local chief, and there's, there's a dispute re resolution around it. So just like a business creates a voucher. So these pe people are creating a voucher against their future production, like their goods and services, their, uh, their goats, anything. And we're showing an, a rural place here, but um, in, a, in a city, it's, it's very similar. And not only that, but there's also a collateral fund, okay? And that collateral right now is an on-chain asset. And essentially what, what happens is we, we take some Kenyan shillings from, let's say, a donor like Red Cross, and we, the community can also put in some uh, into this reserve as well, and that forms this collateral pool, okay? So the currency is 100% backed socially by goods and services. So they're creating a credit, and that is bringing the community together to decide how they would like to create this credit. How do they back it? But then what would they like to do with it, right? So some of it goes to the, to the people who are putting in commitments, and some of it goes into voted on community projects, right? So they can say some of this goes to helping the elderly. Some of this will go towards uh, planting trees. Some of this will go toward... Uh, supporting kids' education. And so they spend it then into circulation, they do loaning, they do all kinds of activities with those tokens. It circulates right. among the entire community. And at, any, and at any point, someone could basically tap into that collateral behind it, okay? So there's an exchange process as well. And that exchange can go in both directions. So people can add to the reserve or they can also pull out from the reserve. So okay. the reserve you, gives it- yeah collateral and it also connects it to the greater economy. Yeah. You said it's um, sure. the value is created on future activities, not on uh, past activities. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very much kind of a promissory note. We're creating a credit against future production. That's the primary backing. And in order to safeguard that, we have a collateral as well. And right now we use 25% as our, as our full collateral pool level, right? So basically, if they're creating, let's say, $4,000 of tokens here, they need to have $1,000 of collateral here. When you say $1,000 of collateral, is, is that 1,000 uh, Kenyan shillings uh, or 1,000 US dollars worth of collaterals for $4,000 worth of value? Is that what it is? Yeah, I'm, I'm putting it all into US dollar terms. And that extrinsic value, who determines that value? You, you said the community agrees and it's 100% guaranteed. So um, how, did the, how does that come about? The most innovative thing here is that the, the bonding between these tokens that they create, the community inclusion currency and their reserve, is managed by an automated market maker. And essentially it's an equation, right? So there's an equation, they often call it a bonding curve. And that basically says, if I have some of these tokens, and I liquidate them, how much of the reserve do I pull out, okay? And it's a dynamic curve, meaning that the more, it's like a diminishing return equation. The next time someone tries to extract or liquid tokens, the less they will get from the reserve, okay? For the same amount of tokens that they're, they're burning, essentially, or liquidating, okay? Right. And vice versa, if I add money into this reserve, I'm actually gonna create new tokens. And there's an equation for, for that minting to burning ratio, and that's called a, a bonding curve. And so there's, a, there's an automated market here 
But essentially, these people with their commitments, they're backing it one to one with their future capacity. And so you end up with an arbitrage opportunity, essentially, right? So if the value uh, to cash out to the reserve is quite low, well, that means that there's an advantage now to put money into this reserve in order to buy these products. The market stabilization basically requires that there, there is an advantage to put money in or pull money out based on the local value, right? And so the local value and its exchange value, they are decoupled in a, in a sense, but they're also coupled together. So they, they tend to move with each other. That in a way is the most interesting thing that we're doing, I think on the community currency level is because it connects a community currency to the national currency. What assumptions do you need to make about the community for this to be a stable uh, project uh, where everyone trusts the system and, uh, and maintain the value um, and for it to be a collateral, uh, it needs to carry the information um, of what's been promised. What needs to exist for all of these things to, to be in place? If I'm holding one of these tokens and I have a choice to buy, let's say I have 20 CICs here, community inclusion currency, and there's a shop right in front of me and I can buy 20 shillings of chapati, right? Or right. I could cash it out right now and get, get two Kenyan shillings, yeah. right? So there's yeah. a choice yeah. there, depending on, on that, that current bonding curve. What keeps the price stable? Because that person could also now put in 10 shillings here in order to get more tokens to buy those chapatis, right? And that will raise the curve back up. The community is what stabilizes that price. Around the world, uh, when we look at um, rural, semi-rural, um, poor communities, um, some of them are very stable um, and some of them are not. They're transient outside of major cities and some of them are agricultural uh, and so on. So uh, what needs to exist for, for the community to be successful? Because it seems to me that the trust and the function of the community is uh, critical in this program. Uh, Emmanuel, like you rightly pointed out, uh, the fat, uh, first aspect is trust. So ideally, we do make assumptions that this community are sort of close-knit. They know so much of each other and that they are really interactive. Essentially, for it to work, you want to link communities so people are willing to buy and they're willing to sell. And apart from that, we also look at uh, like... Uh, what institutions already exist in the communities. For most right. of the community that has really worked for us are communities that have strong, really basic institutions, like uh, they have already savings uh, and loan schemes that are local. They have what we call village loans and savings associations, yeah. right. really strong cultural leaders. So it's really the small, small things that work and really get the currency moving. Uh, when I studied um, the Grameen Bank model in Bangladesh, um, yes. that model uh, worked very well when you had groups of six women um, you know, um, in a social configuration. When that model was um, exported to India, it, it just blew apart because the stable community of trusted six women did not exist. Um, in, in your case, uh, in terms of community currency, is there an optimum size in terms of the size of the community um, and how migrant uh, is the community and, uh, and were there communities where this program did not work? It's working really well in the rural areas. We had more challenges in the peri-urban areas whereby you have more people migrating. So you that you'll have people that are coming from maybe rural areas to come live for a short while so that they can work and then they leave. And so for us, it's also a learning experience. It's about how 
and even that community currency now create those social systems that you find in the rural areas? Can it help uh, add trust to it? There's really a difference between like rural and urban for us. And even we had more challenges in the urban settings than in the rural settings because somebody would come join and then they decide, no, town life is not working for me. Let me go away. And how do you make sure the community can deal with such scenarios? What happens when that takes place? And also right. it's up to us to be more flexible and versatile and to be able right. to learn and make sure it's a tool that's working for the different settings. So the collaterals that you create in each of these areas, are they interchangeable or are they different, uh, operating at different levels um, of trust, of, um, you know, of uh, intrinsic value in each one of them? Is it unique to each one of them? They, they all have their own collateral pool and their own currency, but because they're all connected to Kenyan shilling in that way, right, the, the reserve, they can all interchange with each other too. So if I have a currency, let's call it will tokens, and Dama has one called Dama tokens, she, they're in two different communities, I can still trade with her. And what happens is, is that some of my collateral moves over to her community. And she has a trade advantage now to buy back from my community. The collateral pool and the connection to many currencies kind of helps that because we're not trying to make one currency that rules them all. The idea is to have every village have one, maybe even two, and they can merge, they can grow together, one can consume the other. It's a natural sort of market uh, that plays with all of the village. How is the information on the commitment carried on the token? And I mean, you mentioned blockchain, which is relatively new. Um, yeah. Was there a time when, those, when that information was carried differently on an you know, actual physical voucher? Um, or you know, was it always digital? Um, and you know, some of the security features that are required uh, for that information to be captured and, and easily transmitted at the same time secure. We used to use paper vouchers and we did a lot of security um, you know, features on them like uh, ultraviolet ink and you know, watermarks and metal in them. And it, very expensive to do that and very hard to uh, sort of to manage that vault of cash, you know, printing it and all that stuff. It's a, it's a logistics nightmare. It's definitely not very scalable. This was back, yeah, from 2010 to about like, we started moving digital starting in 2015 and then we went fully digital about in 2019. And, this, um, and you had this idea long before blockchain. And that's very interesting because blockchain sort of feeds into it so nicely, doesn't it? We got into Bitcoin way back in like 2015 and we were trying to kind of use it, piggyback on Bitcoin to do this stuff. And the technology wasn't there and also, we're using USSD as well, so to connect people on a with no internet, right, to the internet, to the blockchain, that was also an expensive challenge back then, and it's gotten much cheaper now. Um, and and a lot of the the technology, like the bonding curve, like to to be able to store collateral on chain, you to do that on Bitcoin, like it's it, the the technology just it, it still isn't there. Uh, you know, it was very alphabet, but on on the more modern. Uh, stuff you can store very uh, interesting contracts like a social contract but in terms of knowing the social commitments behind it that's what we're working right now to develop around doing DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations where so people can actually have sort of a commitment token or a vote um, and track that but right now it's being stored in a social way do you physically support uh the so-called DAO um yourselves uh, as in you buy service, it, it sits somewhere in, um, in the village um, and, then it's, um, and then it captures uh, all the transactions that are taking place or 
um, you know, does it exist um, as a Ethereum in the cloud or something? All of the transactions are being done on a, a side chain of Ethereum. So they're, they're, it's a public blockchain. So you can actually, every single person has a blockchain address. They all have a private key. They are, every single transaction is anonymous but transparent on the public blockchain. Um, we also have a server right now that's facilitating that, that basically takes their feature phone request and pushes it onto the internet, right? And so we're facilitating that role, but there's a lot of communities where we can start using a web app where the, the user has all uh, control completely on their web app, so they don't need us at, uh, at all. So we're, our main goal is to basically just take technology and train communities how to use that technology. And can new, tech, uh, new tokens be created um, out of the transactions, meaning you know, outside of your control, um, and maybe even without the fiat currency involved in the beginning, um, they create um, a new contract and then, and then that gets carried and you can actually add value to that um, as you go along. Um, is that possible? Almost anything's possible, but if we're going to be facilitating this process, and especially if we're bringing donor funds in, we want to maintain standards, right? So if you want to create you know, a, a trillion Emmanuel tokens, you can go to the blockchain and just do that right now, right? But if you're going to convince people and if we're going to help you in terms of marketing that, you know, with, with your community, we want to make sure that people can have some assurance. Our role is in, in one way to make sure that when people are issuing and using these, they're following certain standards. You know, we're keeping a standard of 25% reserve when the token's created. Um, and that's in dealing with Red Cross and just dealing with, you know, the, the risk. And, that, and also there's a minimum, you know, like amount of tokens that are being created in terms of you know what's the, what's going to be the volatility as people are cashing in and cashing out of those tokens compared to the circulation so so the reserve includes a liquidity pool which is um, a portion of it which is uh, set aside so that people can buy and sell as they like uh, you've never exactly. got into a liquidity crisis that you had to review the liquidity pool or something like that uh, no we haven't yet but i can imagine that you know like there's the case where let's say everyone in the community decides it's a, some sort of crisis or they all want to cash out so they all liquidate their tokens there will still be some tokens that basically are left over that just essentially have no value anymore now yeah. either that's an opportunity for someone to buy into the community right so like if there are tomatoes on offer that means they're very cheap right now in, in a sense if i fill back up that liquidity pool or red cross can come in and support that community at that time so to me, that's just, that's a natural market function. We're not going to stop that from, from happening, but we can buffer yeah. it. Yeah. What are the stress points that you worry about? And uh, especially now uh, with, the, with, yeah. with the global COVID crisis. Like, let's say there's, there's no more liquidity in that pool. What they're left with now is a basic community currency, right? Which is even more dependent. You know, I've got chapatis and you can work on my roof and I can take care of your kids. So, I mean, the fallback in a way is always community trust, right? So right. the collateral pool is, is meant in a way to sort of bootstrap that. It can help, you know, like bring businesses on board. But ultimately the goal is, is not to depend on that, but it's to, it's, it's to build community um, in that right. process. So, you know, in right. one way we're looking at crisis response. In another way, we're looking at how do communities recover and build trust and, and, and grow together. What do you worry about in terms of uh, rural communities in Kenya, um, uh, how that's evolving? Uh, and, and, you know, uh, do you worry about situations where um, a, a closed community like this can become unstable? There's always uncertainty, yes. Even like when you look with COVID and all that. But then as Will talks about 
um, the ability for them to have something to fall back on is also something that we are really proud of. And so if a community member goes to town, it's almost like that's the lifeline out there. And then now towns are all closed up, yes? Like in yeah. uh, Kenya, Nairobi and Mombasa were the first to be contained. And then it has been really good to see that maybe they are oh. the future, yes? Like right now in Kenya, we are looking to those rural communities to be able to be food secure. For them to be food secure, they have to have access to farm inputs. They have to have access to the information that they get from agricultural extension officers. So most of the time, it's the word of that access to that information. And also in terms of access to input so that they can be better. But then if you look even at our data, like there was a lot of spending of the community currency, which was good, which means that these people, even with the loss of livelihood, they were able to go on with their trade. They were able yes. to meet their daily needs. And apart from that, they were able to come together as a community and pull resources together. If you see more of savings, especially in the social groups, what you call village loans and savings associations, it's a right. good indicator. What I like most about CICs and us having used the blockchain is the access to data. And the fact that we, have, we can be able to use data to make informed uh, decisions. So Red Cross have come in, they want to do something for the community. We don't have to worry about them using phones that are internet based. Uh, so even with a basic phone, it's just as simple as sending a message. And then yes. for me, my biggest worry is making communities disillusioned, whereby you are bringing something that's meant to help them, but sort of makes them feel disempowered. If you go to a rural community and insist, they have to use the CIC on a smartphone that they don't know how to access, that they have no money to buy internet for, you are not really adding value to them. You are almost telling them they are alienated from the world. The fact that the CICs can work on a simple phone this person can go to the farm with that phone. It's really good. So for the fact that it was really simple. Uh, I'm getting the sense that it works very well in a closed community where the transactions are between trusted parties. For example, um, if someone outside the community wanted to, to plug into the community to, um, you know, to, to look at your production of, say, um, wheat or you know, um, uh, agriculture uh, and make a commitment on that and then uh, and then uh, buy from the community. Uh, is there a way to externalize uh, the data so that it's used for trading um, commodities outside, you know, outside the community? Yes, because I think William told you that one of the good things about us uh, having even the blockchain and them being to share is that now we sort of opened up the communities to each other. So it's possible. Right now we have, there, there's a website where you can actually look at all of this stuff so there's a dashboard right. that you can you can some of this data and also there's and all of it's anonymous working with um accenture and and some other partners in terms of like how do we you know what, what are the different methods people can like a donor or impact investor or local governments can, can use to access this data um and and act on it right so like and you know, an impact investor could come in and say, I want to support the, the reserve of this community. And by doing so, they actually increase the liquidity of that whole community. And then they could donate those tokens into particular sectors or genders um, or different activities. So there's a lot of power in blockchain data like that. It's meant to be, it's not meant to in any way replace national currency. 
the idea is for it to be counter cyclic with national currency, right? So as I have less na national currency, I start using these networks more and more. I, one way we've, we've sort of integrated with government is that essentially the, the backing of these currencies is in national currency, right? I mean, we're using an on-chain asset right now, but that could easily be an on-chain Kenyan shilling or rupee, right? So the idea of, of tying these local credit systems into collateral and doing that in a way that's more secure than the current banking system. I think that's a really key aspect. And, and so what, what trouble did you get into with the central bank? At which point did they become interested in you? I, I mean, just lack of information. Essentially, this was back when we were printing notes. And those notes, again, they look nothing like Kenyan shillings, you know, it's written voucher on them. Like it was very clear. But at the same time, there was like terrorist stuff going on with Al-Shabaab on the coast. And basically, you know, we basically got a, a media uh, crew came in and said this was a secessionist plot that we're trying to create another government and another country and I mean it was really it was just sensationalism when the government got involved they they essentially got to the point where like they and, and the director of public prosecution came in and said there's no laws being broken and they they recommended that the central bank start to regulate this space and by the time we were invited to the central bank to talk about these things they were doing a blockchain task force. We had moved on to blockchain already. Are you regulated today as a result? Uh, is, is it a regulated activity? Um, do you need a license for what yeah. you're doing now? Not yet. No, there's no, there's no official regulation for what we're doing yet. And, that, and that's what we're, you know, we're working with Red Cross now is, is, is self-regulation. Uh, would the promissory note be a, a tradable security? Uh, you know, would it fall under a classification of that? This is one of the, the realms, like as, you know, Red Cross is piloting this stuff right now and they wanted to do it in all these places. And the question is, within what regulatory environment does this fit? And, you know, is it, is it, under, is it a security? I mean, are, are, if I go to a, a supermarket and they issue a, a paper voucher, voucher to me, is that a security? I don't, it's, it, it's, it's a bit vague. Um, and so I think that those are the, those are the, Parts where we need a lot of help, especially when we're looking at, you know, looking at doing this in India or some other country like um, And the, I, I the think hardest part for us has been that lawyers are way too expensive <laughs> It appears to me that uh, in terms of capturing value in a closed community This program works amazingly a critique would be would, would say to you that this is not a program where you generate wealth it's a value creating um, value recognition program where where value has not been recognized before. You know, it's not like we're totally against capitalism in, the, in that sense. We're basically saying that, can we decentralize monetary issuance? And can we do it to a point that benefits local villages and communities? Can they keep tra track of that? And if, if one person in that village ends up being an extreme profiteer and they end up holding a lot of these tokens, well, essentially, those tokens are only valuable if there is something they can spend them on, right? In that so community. In, in each of these communities that you run this program, or do you have committees where they make those decisions? Like, uh, so when these women's groups come, they come together, they already have a history together. They already have a lot of practices. So we're not trying to really add anything to them. We want to we wanna give them something that fits into what they already know and use. And, you know, if there's other options they could think of, we present those things, but it's for them to sort of design these things themselves. There are some things that we hold in terms of sort of our regulatory space internally, like with, with working with donors like Red Cross, but otherwise the goal is for them to, to design this stuff as much as possible. You know, we've had, I think a million dollars worth of trade just this last year. 
uh, you know, 500,000 transactions, you know, 26.7 thousand users. Um, and a lot of it's just j jumped up because of COVID. People are, are looking for ways to trade with each other because they just don't have national currency. Um, so, so we've had a lot of good, good, good results so far. I would say 90% of that is, is just this last year, but that's, we started in 2000 and at the end of 2018, the fiat currency that sits underneath, we, I mean, we're still in the process of like doing that connection so they can cash it out directly. Um, as they want to cash out, we've been doing manual, um, you know, e-money transfers essentially to them. Well, how the donor agencies, um, you know, uh, receiving this whole program, given how donor agencies have traditionally been uh, running their programs and the role of NGOs, um, you know, uh, grassroots economics doesn't sound like an NGO unless you are. We're a foundation, we're a nonprofit foundation, so kind of like an NGO. But uh, essentially, you know, Red Cross, we've been working a lot with them over the last year and they, they have been doing voucher programs for a long, long, long time. And, and so the idea that you go into a community and distribute a voucher and then they can go and buy food with it and then you restock that food over there, it, it's, not that, it's not that far from what we're doing in, in a way. So the Sarafu, the currency that we're using with, with Red Cross right now, that's, that's not created by a community group. That's created by us with Red Cross. And that's, that's very much a, like a bootstrapping oh. or an, an aid token, right? So the idea is that we go into a community we that is that is having issues and we airdrop you know four dollars worth of these tokens onto everybody in that community and we have we do awareness building campaigns and so when red cross is walking around with their volunteers and they're teaching people about coronavirus they're also saying here take these four dollars and you can buy soap over here and they go to the soap place and say here take these four dollars and you can buy water over here right and so they're just helping connect those communities together and it's a way of bootstrapping and then those communities can then take the the collateral out of the Sarafu and use it to make their own tokens now. So that's going from crisis response into recovery. I think, yeah. you know, the biggest, the biggest questions are these are how do we uh, scale this and, you know, what's the risk appetite? Yes, this seems very good for people, but what would happen if the government just decides they don't like it uh, the next day sort of thing? And so I, that, there's the big challenge right now. There is political, there's, you know, uh, liability kind of challenge um, around that stuff. Um, are there anything, issues uh, in the way that blockchain is evolving in itself that either lends itself to what you're doing or is a potential threat, um, you know, because of, in, of the way in which uh, blockchain uh, is evolving? I, I, there's a big push right now for um, something like a humanitarian blockchain that is that is really like a, a pure kind of social service infrastructure because as blockchain is right now like it, it has been sort of monetized in certain ways that it doesn't actually need to be so if we want you know a, a distributed ledger that the world can use to create credit systems and and we want that to be public infrastructure we need to protect it uh, from profiteering as well how much of this do you think is exportable to other communities? So is this, um, are there ideal conditions uh, for, a, uh, for a program like, um, um, like Safaru Credit uh, to, to, to operate that may not be uh, transportable to other parts of uh, Africa and other, you know, uh, other village communities? How big is the population that is involved in this? Like the villages that you operate in, they are quite big. Um, like we have uh, Miani that has up to almost uh, 14,000 people. 
Only that maybe in rural settings, you find that people are a bit, uh, they're not so densely populated like in towns. So they tend to live really far. And so it calls for unique ways of uh, doing their community currency, having them come up with markets so that they can interact with each other. In terms of you asking what part of it is exportable, it's, uh, we've had a lot of interest, especially from other African countries. For instance, uh, uh, Red Cross asked for a feasibility study in uh, Tigre, Ethiopia, and they wanted to see if this is something that could work there. And this is a tool that could work for them there because these people want to be integrated. So the question comes, can you also use uh, things like Sarafu credit in places where you're having refugees? Even when people move from one place to another, the first thing they want to do is business. They are looking for ways to survive. They're looking for ways to give what they have, whether it's a service or it's a good. When I go to the local uh, village saving and loan scheme, usually they give 20 shillings a week. It's really small, like 20 cents a dollar, I think. Most yeah. of the time people don't have that money because they have to choose. Do I go make those savings or do I feed my family? So have you integrated Sarafu into the savings and loan schemes in the villages? Uh, is that an accepted currency in there? Yes, it is. They have double books and they oh, have... Okay, you got a Sarafu book and a, and, a, and a shilling book. Yeah. But so when, when you buy something like a capital intensive, like a generator, um, how do you monetize in order to buy it from outside the system? We are having this farming community that was walking almost 10 kilometers daily to go grind their maize. And then the community saw that need and they knew that we can offer this service in Sarafu credit. So, so it's also balancing what amount of uh, this portion mill can get services within the community, what percentage of this portion mill will require hardware or electricity that's from outside of the community. Right. And then it's good to note that this is an initiative. We don't want it to be extractive. When you talk about uh, people making profit, we want them to make profit for the good of the community, yes? So when the portion yes. mill makes profit, it reinvests back in the community in form of labor, yeah. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm curious what you will look like when you're wildly successful in the future. Have you seen it? Um, have you seen the program uh, result in change of behavior in the community? Um, you know, do you see a distinct uh, change in uh, attitude towards work, um, you know, value and, and aspirations, stuff like that? For me, it's changes in attitude, especially on the part of women. When I started most of the projects in the community, we would have a farmer group that has a membership of 280. All the leaders were men. For me to be able to see them, just the empowerment that comes with being able to pay every single time when it gives them a good sense of self-esteem. Just the idea that I am able to feed my child three square meals a day. Just the idea that I can buy them fish once in a while. When you free women from that anxiety of meeting their basic needs. And so to be able to see them later on, almost uh, many years now, William can say our ch the chair lady of that group is a woman. She's so empowered before she would just sit so quiet. Now we are using her for peer-to-peer -peer trainings. Like when we wanted to start other projects, she's the one who came and she stood in front of a crowd of almost 400 people. And she said, this works for me and I know it can work for you. And it comes with that sense of, I can meet my needs. I'm able to make savings. And so now for the Sarafu credit to be able to bring back value to that, such that if they take part in initiatives like tree planting, they come back um, and they are paid back in Sarafu credit. 
and they're able to also take part in feeding their families. And right. for them, that was a sense of empowerment. So I think those are a few cases that I could attest to. And it holds the community together. I get this sense that um, you, it's probably not achieved the scale that you want. Is, is there a scale that you wish that it will achieve? Maybe it's for some communities, but um, for us, it's having it as many communities as possible and having those communities do the peer-to-peer training. Yes, it's a proof of concept. People are calling from other communities and they like, want to know how we can be able to do this in my community. That for us is already a success. Thank you very much, both of you. And um, I hope that we'll be able to uh, build on this conversation. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.